fashion emergency hotline. Help, I've got a hot date tonight and I need to look amazing. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's new Rockstar jeans have built-in sculpt to make your bod look va-va-voom. Tell me more. Right now, all jeans are on sale up to 50% off, including kids' jeans and new men's jeans with built-in flags. 50% off? That's right. I think you and your jeans will be very happy together. Jeans that sculpt at an incredible price? I think I'm in love. Thanks. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Bell at 811 to 824. Select styles only. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. As I said last week, I am going to have other episodes interspersed within the Division capsules, and this is an example of that. I wanted to talk with Derek Bodner. He is the 76ers insider for Philadelphia Magazine. He also has a great background as a draft expert from Draft Express, and also he writes for the USA Today on draft issues. And the Sixers are such a fascinating team now because the last time we talked was before even the lottery, and of course they won the lottery, drafted Ben Simmons, got Luau and Korkmaz as well. So we talk about those guys and how they looked in Summer League and Korkmaz's future, but we also start with Joel Embiid, who I think is one of the most fascinating players in the league, and then also go through, of course, the Nerlens Noel, Jaleel Okafor situation. I would say the whole conversation is worth listening to. Those of you who enjoy timestamps, those should be available. The conversation itself runs about an hour 15, and this week we are sponsored by Blue Apron, an absolutely fantastic food delivery service that will change your life if you open yourself up to it. I've really enjoyed it. You go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and now into the conversation with Mr. Bodder. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. I think a good place to start is the piece that you wrote this week, which I think hit on something that is hard to grasp in certain ways for people who are a little bit outside the Sixers organization, but it is dealing with the uncertainty surrounding Joel Embiid. How are you kind of dealing with the idea of the potential best player on the Sixers also being the most uncertain? Well, I think it's gotten a lot easier this summer because now you have Ben Simmons, and you don't want to call Ben Simmons a fallback plan, but even if Joel Embiid doesn't work out, you still have a really high-level talent, whereas in the past, you know, I think when they drafted Jaleel Okafor, I know I wasn't 100% sold on him being a franchise-level player, uh, having that kind of impact. I wasn't sold on Nerlens Noel developing into that. So I think now having Ben Simmons, there's not quite as much pressure on Joel Embiid, not only for Embiid, but also just from the fan base. You're not as worried as you otherwise would have been. And that being said, you know, it, it's almost a weird situation with Embiid because the moment he gets back on the court, I almost think, like, fans are going to get even more nervous and there's going to be more anxiety because you're going to realize what it is you have the potential to lose. Like right now, I think so many, he's been gone for two years and he's almost been out of sight outside of the occasional, you know, YouTube videos and vines and whatnot. He's been kind of out of sight. So you've almost forgotten what you could potentially have in him. Whereas the moment he gets back on that court and starts showing some of that potential. And clearly, I mean, he hasn't played a game of competitive basketball in two and a half years. He's not going to step onto the court and dominate. But the moment you start seeing that that potential and the chance that he really could be a franchise player, I almost feel like it's not like if he goes and plays a month, you're going to be confident all of a sudden. I almost feel like the anxiety is going to grow even more. But, I mean, when you look at it, and I've always said this, it's so hard to get a guy of that talent. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen with that injury. We never will. Uh, and you can look at all the studies on navicular bone injuries, and they're just not applicable because they're not using a population of seven foot two human beings who make their living running and jumping every day. Like there's just there's there's not enough data points. So I don't know how we're going to get 
100% confident. But I do know that, you know, pretty much every NBA champion, every great team had that stroke of luck, whether that's, you know, Michael Jordan and his own navicular bone injury, which we don't even really talk about anymore because it was either his first or second year. But this was a guy who came back against his owner's advice, against his general manager's advice, against their physician's advice, and they all said, look, you're risking your career by coming back. He came back and had a career that was, you know, completely healthy in terms of his navicular bones. So it it does happen, and clearly the body types are so different, you don't ever want to really use that as a comparison point. But every great team from Michael Jordan to Steph Curry's ankles, they have that where they get lucky. And if the Sixers do get lucky in that regard, I think it's going to be a really exciting time. The luck part of it is also important in the sense of the talent of the player involved, because something that I fixate on, especially if the goal is a championship, but it doesn't, it, it can apply a little more broadly, is that teams need those MVP caliber players to win a title. And so the stat that I like to throw out there is that other than the Pistons, which is this amazing anomaly, the last team to win a championship without a player who had already, so not future, already won an MVP, I believe was the Celtics' Bird's first title. So I think that was 82. And why that is relevant to Embiid is that I would argue that if we can take out the navicular bone issue, he is the player on that team with the physical talent most befitting of a potential MVP. And I love Ben Simmons, but that's a different type of guy. Like Embiid is, is somebody who can be a lot of different things at once, and a lot of those things are incredibly useful and can be the best player on a championship team. And so I'm not saying he'll get there, but he has that kind of a talent. And that's why this matters, because as you said, with Steph Curry, like Steph Curry had that, I mean, I don't think any of us saw this in him when he was like, let's say, a college player. But those type of players, not only are they they hard to get, but as Portland fans can grimly nod, it's even sometimes hard to make sure that they reach that level from a physical perspective. There's no doubt. I mean, look, in terms of Embiid being the most talented player, this is a city and a fan base. And I don't mean that as a slight towards Ben Simmons in any regard. This is a fan base that's just gone through a year of basically debating between Okafor or Noel. A debate that's really centered as much as anything around you know, basketball philosophy and what you need of your big men in 2016 and what weaknesses you can overcome and what strengths don't really have as much of, a, of an impact as they used to. I mean, we've been talking about these, these talented but incomplete players for so long, and it's weird to say this about a guy who has such a huge question mark in terms of his, his, his health status, but Joel Embiid has the least number of questions in terms of his game of any player on the roster. You're not dependent on that jump shot being fixed for Ben Simmons. You're not depending on Jaleel Okafor all of a sudden figuring out how to make the quick and precise rotations you need as a big man in today's NBA, losing the weight he would need to, to lose in order to really be, you know, light on his feet and be able to rotate like that. You're not worried about Nerlens Noel developing a jump shot and improving his hands and developing really an offensive game at all that's not based out of lobs and dunks at the rim. Joel Embiid doesn't have to make any major jumps like that. He just has to continue to grow i mean look the way he improved during his freshman season at kansas was something i've never really seen before in a prospect and a lot of times you can have kevin pelton on and he'll tell you that a lot of times the second half performance for a college player isn't really indicative of you know growth as a player as much as it's just you know a hot streak and sometimes we overvalue that but you saw joel Embiid try stuff week by week that he wouldn't have tried the previous week you saw passing out of the post that he just wasn't capable of you saw dream shakes going on throughout the season and you talk to the people who work with him and I've, I've talked to trainers with that worked with them and they're like look we've never had to show this guy a move twice like we show him a move he practices it, and he has such great natural athleticism 
and talent and coordination that he just gets it. And he's he's a very natural athlete, which is something to say when you're you're considering he's you know seven two, two hundred and seventy plus pounds. You just really hope. I mean, like I said, the moment he gets back on that court and you start seeing this not against a six foot trainer or against a you know one on none setting, but when you start seeing it in, in, in game action, it's that that anxiety level is gonna be really high, but that that excitement level right now is really high as well. Part of what makes Embiid so tantalizing for me, and and I think we'll go in this direction after this, is you don't have to make the same choices with him. So there has there's been this kind of idea of the death of the big man in the NBA and all this stuff about how it's changed. And I mean, Draymond Green at center has certainly affected parts of it. My theory with that for a long time, and I think Anthony Davis kind of is, is the exception that proves the rule in a way with this, is that... The reason that we're seeing big men thrive less is just that nobody can do kind of both sets of things that a, 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 an NBA center would need to do in this world, and that is being a the defensive force that is basically a requirement for a successful team in that position now, but then also have some sort of offensive game that they can hang their head on, whether that be a post game, shooting threes, you know, making mid-range shots, dribble drive, whatever it is, like having some sort of offensive game. And why Embiid is at a different level than a lot of these players, you know, and Towns is the other parallel with this, and Towns is incredible, and I'm not going to say anything to denigrate him. I think Towns is and was a better prospect than Embiid is that he, d- he doesn't force you to make that choice, that you don't have to choose between Okafor's offense and Noel's defense. You get something that's closer to both of those in one person who also had the, has the athleticism, if he can reach it, to do the things that we ask an ideal center to do in today's NBA as well. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's not, it's not so much that a post scorer is dead, although you know I do think it's a little bit harder to operate in that, in that environment in today's NBA. But it's that... You know, you need, and, and this is brought on by rule changes from the mid-2000s on as much as anything. I think people tend to look at small ball as a, a warrior's phenomenon that's going to die when people realize you can't replicate that. I don't think it's that at all. It's really brought on by rule changes, but your, your big men have to be able to defend in space. They have to be able to switch. And they also have to be able to alter shots at the rim. And having a guy who has that kind of mobility to do those things and also then score in the post is exceptionally rare. Uh, I, I don't think size is going out in the NBA. I don't think that even post-scoring and offensive centers are going out in the NBA. But what you need is you need that kind of, of versatility. And I do think that's an, an incredibly difficult to find. But if you can find that, I mean, look, I, I, I talked to John Calipari, who's, you know, everyone wants to go small until you get a seven-footer who can move like a guard. And that's really what you're talking about with Willie Cully-Stein and Nerlens Noel and that kind of new-age center, and, and even Dragan Bender from this last draft class. But indeed, you know, he's not going to move on the perimeter like Noel, but he's going to give you a lot that you need from a big man in today's NBA. And also, he's going to be a post-scorer. He's going to be a pick-and-roll threat. Uh, he's going to be a, a really athletic guy who can alter shots. I think he, we've said this so many times, it's it's really, you just hope. As a basketball fan, forget forget Philadelphia and Philadelphia fans. As a basketball fan, you hope that this is a guy who, who can stay healthy. And I do think that the team is, they feel like he's in a better spot this year than he was last year. From what you know, and I'm sure you've learned a lot about these injuries in the recent past, does carrying more weight, add to the risk or is that something that's just kind of around this no i mean i think it i think it's probably fair to say that it does add more risk to it so that, um, maybe that'd be a motivator for him to to stay a little bit leaner yeah and and you look at him and he's kind of gone in the other direction he's certainly bulked up quite a bit since he was at kansas uh you wonder if they're going to try to slim him down when he's back to doing a li- you know he, he was off his feet for so long 
he didn't really have much he could work out with. Like he couldn't he couldn't play competitive basketball and, and get that kind of cardiovascular work in. Uh, so you wonder if they're going to alter that at all. You know, I do think that getting the, the the graft hopefully helps offset that a little bit. Something that they didn't do the first time he had his surgery, and I think it's important to remember that when he had his initial surgery, it was before the 2014 draft, and the team didn't have any involvement in that. So I think it's it's interesting that they then got a different procedure, had a different set of, of doctors, although the initial doctor was in there as well. Um, you know, I think, like I said, I think they feel like he's in a better spot. I think they feel like the surgery they had this time around puts him in a, a better chance to succeed and, and, and remain healthy. But, yeah, I do think carrying around that kind of weight, you know, I think ideally he would tri- trim down a little bit. One of the aspects of the whole Embiid situation that is so different and so fascinating is that he is nominally a rookie because he hasn't played an NBA game, but he will be entering his third season under contract, which also means not only is it, you know, have you two of those years kind of been burned, and of course that is what it is, but that also means that he will be extension eligible after this season, but also compounds with this being the final year Nerlens Noel has on his rookie scale contract. And Okafor has, you know, three more seasons, but is still moving along that path. So the Sixers are getting closer to where the rubber meets the road in terms of having to make bigger decisions involving those players. Yeah, uh, I mean, how many how many rookies in NBA history have been extension eligible after their rookie season? And certainly when you're talking about a, dr- a top draft pick, it's a really awkward situation because after one year, you're going to be sitting there, A, you're not going to be completely confident over his long-term health anyway. There's almost nothing that could happen right now over the course of 12 months to give you 100% confidence that there's not going to be a recurrence in this, this, this foot injury. And B, how much can he really show over a rookie season where they've already admitted that you know they're going to bring him along slowly, where you know back-to-backs, things of like that, they're probably going to look to rest him, where he's probably not going to start off playing heavy minutes. Um, there's just not a whole lot that I think can happen. You know, I don't think he's really. I, I don't think an extension next year is really going to be on the table. But even after two years, how confident can you be after two? It's going to be fascinating to watch them navigate this situation and look i mean if he if he has any shows anything and he's remotely healthy over the next two years and he shows the kind of talent that he has i don't think there's any question that they're going to look to you know look to extend him i mean you don't put this much time this many resources into him with the belief that he has that kind of talent and then let him go when he hits free agency just because there's no chance he could prove it but it's going to be you know, when you're when you're looking at the extension, there's going to be there's going to be a, a a little bit of risk and a little bit of concern. Uh, I don't I don't think there's any real way to prevent that. Realistically, to me, I don't see a way that you would extend him before. You know, so I think he's a right. great player, sort of like Festus Azili in the way where you wait it out and you see where they are at that point, and that does carry more risk. You know, maybe if he's as awesome as as we both hope. He'll, you know, maybe then he'll sign a a three plus one, so three years plus a player option with someone else. Maybe they even change those rules in the next CBA. But you, I think you have to take that risk because you still have match rights and there's so much uncertainty that I don't see there, I don't really see there being an incentive to doing that. And, and what was part of the reason and a great example of this is DeMarcus Cousins is with extending somebody even at a high level is to make them happy. I think Joel would understand that they can't do that with him considering his precedent. Right. No, I mean, I, th- I think if it, the way you handle this is you let him go into restrict free agency and you get as much information as you can before you're, first, you're forced into a decision. Yeah. Derek and I have talked a lot about uncertainty on this podcast, and something you can be very certain about is the quality of Blue Apron. 
for less than $10 per person per meal, you can get an amazing quality of ingredients and build cooking confidence. It's something that's very important to me as the son of two very talented chefs who had no experience really in the kitchen, but I liked food was this peril of how can I make it myself? And there really is no substitute for learning it through hands-on experience. And so there are a multitude of different things. Blue Apron actually doesn't repeat a meal within a year. So you get great options all of the time. And it's something that I look forward to every single week. I've learned how to make new things, cooked salmon fillets this past week, and actually learned how to flake salmon, which is something I've never really done before. And it was excellent quality and amazing sauce. Again, it's high quality ingredients. They give you the recipes, they give you the techniques, so you can build your own versions of it moving forward and you can build a repertoire and that's so important and to make it even better for you you can go to blueapron.com slash real gm and you can get three meals for free and that includes free shipping and so you can try it out see if you like it as much as i do and i'm confident that you will blueapron.com slash real gm now back to the conversation so i love the way that this happened with the two of us because we the, we talked before the lottery i think it was a couple of weeks before the lottery and we were talking about you know the guys that that you thought were the most interesting and you brought and of course we talked about the big guys and then after we got through i think it was four or five players you're like you you just impromptu mentioned one of the other guys that you liked was timothy luau and i was beyond excited for you when he was available at what was it 22 24 24 so instead of starting with Simmons, let's start with Luau. Yeah, I had him. I had him really high, uh, r- rated really highly, and it's you know it, it's kind of a little bit of a function of this draft class. Uh, I wouldn't say I look at him as a future star. You know, I think he probably maxes out as a a role playing starter, which is weird to say when you have a guy ranked in your top ten in this draft. But I had so many questions with everybody else in that range, and I looked at him and I said, look, the amount of development he's going to have to have in order to become that two way starting caliber wing player just isn't all that much he has to continue to to get a little bit more consistent on his three-point shot he needs to improve his decision making and he needs to really pick up his his recognition both offensively and defensively and i thought those were all areas that were realistic to see him improve upon i think when you look at some of his numbers last year uh with megalex i think you can look at his efficiency and really be concerned and I think you can look at his decision-making and you can see where that inefficiency came from. But that's such a unique team and such a unique system. And they give their guys so much freedom. But I think it maybe made him look a little worse than he would have in terms of the statistics. Uh, I think he was kind of – he wasn't dissuaded from taking some of those pull-up jumpers that you would kind of dissuade him from. He was given a bigger role than he would have. But he's so athletic. He can get up and down the court so easily. He has been making progress on that jump shot. He has a defensive profile. Uh, and I think he can cut off the ball, too. So I think when you take him off of that role where he was asked to do too much, and now you put him next to Simmons and allow him to really use his athleticism and move off the ball, I think he can develop into a, a piece. Uh, and, and really, that's all I was looking for was a two-way piece at that spot. You know, I like him. I think he's going to look bad at times, and I think he's probably going to be brought along slowly, even though he is, I think, 21 years old. But I think that if he buys in and if he really embraces the role that they're going to ask him to play, I think he can be a, a real solid contributor. Yeah, something that I've taken away from the last little bit is that the Megalex guys, I think you have to watch film on them because it's such a different system. And 
you, that can provide context because I think especially with European players who many of us do not watch as regularly is that there are a couple of different things that you want to see. And what I liked about him when I watched, because I watched more film of him after we talked because I was so interested that somebody who whose opinion I respected liked him so much. And what I was fascinated by with him was that I saw the, de- the defensive potential is certainly there. I mean, that that's not, that's not really a concern. Was that there was a light on for him offensively in terms of creation, particularly for kind of for other people in a way more, just like being able to pass the ball, get into space and things like that, which is very unusual for a player who is more of that athleticism and maybe even three-point shooting ilk. And so like the example I would probably use is that I saw more from him in terms of offensive ver- in terms of offensive game than somebody like KJ McDaniels, who is a phenomenal athlete and I think has disappointed in the NBA partially because he doesn't he doesn't have for whatever reason I don't know why he doesn't seem like he plays with the crazy motor he needs to but also because he didn't have that kind of savvy to make his offensive game make sense yeah no and I I think that's fair and I think the KJ comparison and not really that's the comparison but one interesting thing that held KJ back is his ball handling and I think that's something that Timothy is going to have to improve upon over the next couple of years but even so, just to be that role player that I think I was talking about, it's so much going to come down to decision-making, being in the right places defensively, taking the right shots, developing that corner three. And like I said, I think there's a very low threshold that he has to improve upon in order to be that role player. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's fair. And I mean, so like you said about the, the decision-making, the ball handling and the passing and the vision, I think he has some of that. And again, when you have a guy like Ben Simmons creating, you're going to get a lot of second and third pass opportunities. And having a guy like that, even if you're never going to ask him to create off the dribble or create at a high level, just having a guy like that who can make good reads and make and has the, the court vision to see those next opportunities, I do think that can be a part of his game too. Yeah, I typically use this phrase referring to a big man after the catch on like a pick and pop, but two dribbles and a good decision. If you can do that at, at really with any frequency, it just helps. It doesn't necessarily mean, oh, they should run the offense through you or they should do all this stuff. It's just that allows things to flow a lot better. And while I love him in so many other ways, I think Danny Green is a good example of how that can be a problem, you know, especially when a, a player is a two guard, that you need a certain amount of creation just overall outside of your primary ball handler and while of course Danny Green is a wonderful player and still worth playing if he could do that if he could do two dribbles and a good decision more regularly he would be even better yeah uh, absolutely and I think that's something that when you look at at Sarge too uh, that he can do almost in a you know Draymond Green has kind of taken this role to a a level that nobody's ever seen it before but another one where you know you can live off of that Ben Simmons pick and roll and have somebody like Sarch or in, in the Warriors case Draymond where they can make a, a really good decision and use that you know opportunity that was created to to then set somebody else up yeah and another guy who has improved a lot in that way is Clay Thompson in terms of that that it while nobody's going to be able to replicate what Golden State does offensively with without their talent one of the carryovers is that having competent passers, and especially if they can playmake a little bit, the more of them you have, you create this offensive threshold that becomes even more dangerous because you can maximize the advantages created by even a smaller number of people. And so then you are you are able to capitalize to a different degree on the Ben Simmonses, on the point guard, whoever that ends up being long-term, on those types of players. And 
that is something that is actually when teams are going to try to replicate this that they will fail at most frequently is making sure that almost everybody or everybody on the team is a competent dribbler and passer. Yeah, and I think for a long time we kind of looked at passing and ball handling as kind of overlapping skills, and and maybe you wouldn't get that benefit, but it's more ball dominance and, and getting these guys who are off-ball players but who can also make those those secondary reads I don't think there's ever a point where having as many of those as possible is a bad thing. So, have you heard anything about Korkmaz yet? Uh, so, it sounds like he'll come over maybe next year. Is that about the right expectation to have? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's probably the right expectation to have. I think he wanted to come over here. Um, his buyout was a little bit more difficult uh, than Luau's. I think it was like $2 million, but I think they could have paid it in installments, I think is what it was. But they, they just weren't able to work it out. To be truthful, I don't even know if the Sixers really had a whole lot of interest in adding another rookie to the team this year anyway. Um, but yeah, I think he wants to come over here. He wants to come over relatively soon. And I think his his buyout, I have to double check, but I think it would be feasible next year. And from what you know so far, is he more of kind of like a rotation two guard? I think that's from what I've seen from him, that seems about best. And, you know, he could he could become better than that. But even if that's what he is, it's incredibly useful, especially with his shooting. Yeah, I think that's probably what it is. I think if you look at him and you look at the age that he was playing at and the competition he was playing at, he, against, he really was one of the better shooters in the draft. Real good off the ball shooter, can move. Without the ball, run off screens, can make a, a little bit of plays with the ball in his hands. And again, not a guy that you're going to run your offense through, but if he's attacking a closeout, he can then make the right pass after that when the defense rotates. You know, his biggest thing is he's physically not capable of competing right now. He needs to put on some pretty serious strength. And he's even a little more athletic, I think, than people give him credit for. But when he tries to finish at the rim, he just he can't physically finish through that kind of contact. Um, so he really needs to mature physically. He's only, I think, 18 years old. Uh, he has some time, but that's really where he's going to have to make his next improvement is is in his body. And at his point in the draft, while there is a possibility that the new the next CBA changes the rookie scale, I don't think it's going to make a huge dent that late. So it's not like the Sixers were taking this risk of like, oh, what if they totally reform the system and he gets paid a lot more money? And even then, just getting another year where he's not on the rookie scale and extending it out is a good thing for them. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty okay with using your you know Euro League and and using foreign players as a means of developing them before they come over to the NBA. You give them time, playing time, quality competition, and don't start that rookie scale contract. I don't think that's I think in a lot of ways that is a a good you know sort of minor league system to use. Um, you know I don't think it really benefits somebody like him to come over not really play at all, probably going to spend more time in the D-League and start that rookie-scale contract. You know, I think it's great to get a guy into your gym working with your coaching staff, you know, but at what cost? And I think playing over there where he is in a league that he is and getting minutes and continuing his development there, I do think that is beneficial, especially because, like you said, that rookie skill doesn't yet start. It's also substantially different when a player is in a situation in Europe that already makes sense because you don't have that kind of a risk, whereas you think about somebody like, let's say, Yabusele, who is going to China and all of the risks and uncertainty that's associated with that. And I'm not saying the Celtics should have brought him over. They had very real situation. But I think with Korkmaz, when you have that stability and understanding, it definitely makes that a more palatable choice. Right. And it's an environment that he's already played in. He knows what he's getting himself into. It's a team that, by and large, is you know a consistent 
functional team. You're not going to have to worry about you know really high level turnover. Uh, they compete at a high level regularly in a league that is pretty consistently strong league. You know, I, I think he's in a good spot. Okay, I think I think we've gone long enough without talking about Simmons. Uh, I, so. <laughs> So what struck me in Summer League, there were two things. One, the idea of him not being a scorer is definitely legitimate, at least at this point, that I, I don't think he's going to be that guy, which is a small criticism, but not, not that important. But the second thing that was a really important positive is I didn't expect him to be able to do something very specific, and he nailed this, which is his activity, especially with the ball in his hands, creates seams which are sometimes open for very short periods of time and typically that is caused by a help a defender realizing oh crap i need to get over and help and he is able to identify and make that pass already and at his age that is an incredibly valuable thing yeah i mean his passing there is no way you can look at his passing and not be impressed i mean if if if, if you weren't impressed by his passing you just you couldn't have been watching uh he he might step in the nba and legitimately be one of the 10 best passers in the league, just from a pure creativity standpoint. I do agree with you that scoring, I mean, look, he needs a left hand, which is, is weird to say since he's, by and large, a left-hand player. He needs a left hand in the worst way, uh, and he needs that He needs that quickly because he really struggled at the rim. Uh, and without that, I mean, his jump shot is obviously not there yet. He doesn't really have the confidence to take it very very frequently. You know, he's going to get his... His opportunity is in transition. He has a little bit of a floater game. He's going to finish occasionally when he has the mismatches, but in order to be that high-level scorer that I think you want, uh, it is going to take some time. I do agree with that. But his passing is very impressive. I thought his defense was inconsistent, but I thought it was better than I kind of expected it to be. He does have that potential to switch a little bit defensively and defend multiple positions and, and, and switch on ball handlers. So I think that was good. You know, He's never going to be that, that rim protector, that shot blocker. But just his ability to rebound on the defensive side of the court, push the ball in transition, and make those you know brilliant passes that he did. I mean, I thought he was impressive in summer league, and, and you know I'm a guy who had him rated as clearly the number one prospect in the draft heading in. So for him to impress, you know, I think when you're looking in summer league, you're looking a does he belong uh, and look like he belongs athletically. And by and large, I thought he did. And did he seem overwhelmed by the moment? And I didn't think he did. So you look at that passing; that's a very projectable skill. And then you look at the other areas of his game that I agree he needs to improve upon, but I think they're, with possibly the exception of that shooting, which is, is in question, I think I think there's a lot of room to grow. He can provide value to a team immediately with his passing and just the ability to create like he can at his size. is something that, it's weird to, again, go back to Draymond, but something that Draymond does, which when people say, oh, they're the next Draymond, is so silly, is that... He is able to, when there is space in front of him, use that and then make the right decision, whether that's a pass or a shot. And what, why it's so dangerous is because help defenders by your instinct. When you see a 6'9", 6'10 guy barreling down the lane, your instinct, if you're a good defender, is to go over and right help time. out. Like, yep. That's what you're supposed to do. And Draymond, a lot of times, actually the guy who was best at this with was Festus Azili, was he would read that move and then lob it. And that's a, a great thing to do. And what it, what I love about it is that you are using an opponent's training, skill, and instincts against them. And while you would love for Simmons to be able to also handle the situation when a player, let's say, has the scouting report on him and stays back a little bit to score then, because when they come over eventually to, to do that, to do it. But what he can do right now is already incredibly useful. You know, I think I think you made a great point on player instincts. I mean, how many times do you see a left-handed player 
and everybody knows. I, I mean, I spent you know so many years watching and covering Thaddeus Young, and everybody in the world knew he didn't have a right hand at all, like not at all. Everybody still gave him his left hand, and he he took it every time because instinctively players players shade people to their right hand. And you when you say that with with a guy driving like that, you know, yeah, it might be easy for us as you know people watching the game and analyzing shot locations say, all right, give him that shot, meet him at the rim, and just play ten feet off of him. But when when you're in that situation and maybe you run a high pick and roll and, and another defender has to rotate over, you're not thinking that. You're thinking I have to go stop this guy. And when that defense does rotate, he sees the court as well as, as anyone. This is partly where his size, he can see over the defense. He doesn't really get his, his angles blocked at all. And I mean, he just makes these creative passes. And a lot of the pre-draft process, and probably the part that I like the least, is player comparisons. And you're always getting comparisons leading up to the draft. And one of them that was being made was Magic Johnson. And on the one hand, it's unfair. And it's always unfair when you, you compare a rookie to a, a Hall of Famer. You're 99 times out of 100 going to be on the losing end of that comparison. But in terms of just sheer creativity of a guy of his size and having that kind of vision and instincts and ability to see two or three passes ahead, there just haven't been many six foot ten guys that have come along between Magic and Ben Simmons that you would say that that Ben Simmons doesn't compare favorably to. And just in terms of sheer, like I said, creativity, passing, willingness to make that pass, being able to see it ahead of time. And being able to react to how the defense does. I mean, he's he's making these, you know, bounce passes in transition with spin on the ball and, and going through two defenders. And it's just like, I didn't even see that angle. How, how, how did he possibly even see that? And also have the dexterity to make that pass off the dribble one-handed. It's, it's going to be very fun to watch. And the way that they now can build their team, everyone wants to label, is he a point guard? Is he a power forward? Is he a small forward? He's going to handle the ball quite a bit in the half court. You can label that whatever you want. But that gives them a lot more flexibility now to go out and get a point guard and get perimeter players who can space the floor and who can really play off of his strengths. And it's going to be, you know, they really have a piece to build around now. They do. And there are a couple of different thresholds that Simmons has and will need to make. And one of them, which incidentally, though this is unfair to him, I think about Doug McDermott for this, is will the player be good enough offensively that you can justify having him guard the other team's less dangerous forward defensively? Because you need to reach a certain level of productivity and usefulness as a starter. Of course, it's different if you're a backup. Jamal Crawford's a great example of that. You need to reach a certain level to be worth that sort of a decision. And I think Simmons is closer than maybe even I expected to being worth that. And so that is a part of when you're thinking about team building that is important. Because then, if if let's say that's what you want to do, your ideal, and of course ideal is not necessarily what's going to happen, because even if you have perfect opportunity, identification of players and everything else, supply is an issue, that you can look for something a little bit different in his forward partner. And I think that's a really useful aspect of Ben Simmons is that if he can reach that level offensively, then you can think about it in a very different way. And the Sixers, fortunately, have a ton of remaining assets to make that happen if that is the evaluation they make. Yeah, and and by the way, a a really strong point guard class coming up with guys who play the game very differently. Uh, You know, there could be four or five point guards taking the lottery next year. So you get a year to evaluate Ben Simmons determine how much of your half-court offense you're going to want to run run through him, and then what players you need to complement him. And then you have next year where you could have two top five picks, almost certainly two top ten picks, and have a chance to then go out and get those pieces that 
are not only high-level talents, but also really complement his skill sets. Uh, it will be, you know, this will be a season where I think they're going to start off probably bringing him along slowly. And by slowly, I mean he's still going to play 30 minutes a night, but not necessarily run the entire half-court offense through him. But I think as he acclimates himself to the NBA and kind of makes that transition, I think in the second half of the season, you're really going to see him dominate the ball even in the half court for the Sixers. And even if that might not be something that he's capable of right away, or at least capable of doing it at an extremely high level right away, I think they want to use that as an opportunity to evaluate him and try to determine what they think he can grow into so they can then go out and use their own draft pick, use the Lakers pick, the Kings pick swap if it comes into fruition to acquire pieces to complement him. Yeah, and I think the timing of this works out reasonably well. Well, it doesn't in the center aspect. I think that it does in this because they have these other assets. So let's say the their own their own pick, of course, which is an asset. The possibility of Sacramento, which I, I feel pretty pretty good about the idea that at least the Sixers will have a worse record. Of course, teams jump other teams in the lottery all the time, so it's good to have their basically have their lottery balls. And then the Lakers, I mean, I think they're kind of on the fringe of, in terms of record, and then you never know where a team's going to rise or fall in the, dra- in, in the lottery, so we'll see with that. But what is good about that sort of timing is that they have these other assets that are untied to their own success or failure, which is really good. And even if the, another aspect of it, while you and I have talked about the Lakers pick for seems like years now, well, it is years now. Has been years, yeah. Is that one of the fundamental changes that happened this season, and part of the reason why I was so vicious on their offseason, is that I had seen, after they kept their pick this year, I thought, oh, well, you know, the worst-case scenario for the Sixers is that the Lakers in either this summer or next summer get a lot better, and then, you know, that pick is going to be, you know, is going to be bad. And, you know, let's say they had gotten Russell Westbrook or something else, you know, something crazy like that. Then, you know, then then all of a sudden we've been looking at this pick as top three protected for all these years, and then all of a sudden it's like 20. And while there are worse fates, that certainly is a, a reduction in the value of the asset. Now... While, of course, there are a wide variety of things that can happen, spending the money they spent on Dang, on Mozgov, and, and everything else makes it substantially less likely that in the next two years, because if they keep the pick this coming year for 2017, is unprotected the following year, that now, I think there's not a, a true ceiling, but a, a, let's say, a functional ceiling on that pick that means that it'll be it should be able to get them at least a shot at a useful player. Yeah, uh, I mean, look, I'm we can get in the nitty gritty on the moves that they've made. I'm I'm a fan of betting on organizations and front offices and management teams, and having a vested interest in what happens with the Lakers and with the Kings, I think are smart bets to make. And, and maybe that hasn't worked out yet because the Lakers have fallen in the top three, or I think it was top five protected last year and top three this year. But maybe the, the pick hasn't conveyed yet. But I think betting on track records is a pretty smart approach to take. And look, I mean, maybe the Lakers, maybe maybe Ingram just blows up quicker than we expect. Uh, maybe D'Angelo Russell. I mean, he, he certainly looked better towards the end of the season. And in summer league, maybe he makes that step. But even so, first and second year players don't generally make teams substantially better. Uh, and it's a very rare case that that happens. And then you look at how that they've been able to use their cap space the past two years. I think you're right. I think there's a functional cap of how much you can expect them to increase. And, yeah, maybe maybe something surprising happens. They end up with the seventh worst record or the eighth worst record. In this draft, that's not the worst place to be in at all. Uh, this is a very deep draft. This is a draft where, you know, maybe somebody that you have rated two or three might end up falling to seven anyway. 
or, or maybe just where the seventh best player is better than the fourth best player last year. So I think there's a lot of a lot of ways they can go, and I think they're in a very good situation. Yeah, and then of course having the the thing that I've been obsessed with for years now, having that Kings pick in 2019, is even better in some ways because while there's a lot, of course, a lot more variance on a team that far out. I love having a future asset for a team that that is you know has that kind of upside because then what it allows you to do and and an example of this is actually the Raptors this past year though I don't think it worked out as well as as many hoped is that you have this asset after your team has already gotten good and so you can get this young infusion of talent you know it is in many for that situation it was more likely to be a rotation player than a starter but the Kings have enough downside to have the pick have upside where they could potentially the Sixers could be sitting in a place where they've gotten a lot better you know maybe they're even fringe playoff team or even a playoff team at that point but they get the potential of another top five pick then which is just huge for their for their organization because you can think you don't have to worry about oh well we're weakening our own pick in that situation yeah and I mean look I think history is pretty clear that you have a pretty good chance of getting a top 10 pick with that 2019 Kings pick. I mean, look, they've drafted, I think, in the top 10 nine of the last 10 years. So I think betting on them, you know, with that management team and with with the Cousins situation and the volatility there, and in fact, that's a year after you know his contract expires. I think there's a lot of reasons that you would be okay betting on them. And like you said, decoupling draft rewards from your own win total is a great position to be in and a great approach to take and especially for a team that has you know i mean look we can talk about joel Embiid, and we can talk about ben simmons and you know noel and okafor as well this is a fan base that has gone through a lot to get that talent in terms of putting up the last three years and it's something that i've been you know 100 percent on board with because i think the reward is worth it but you can continue to get similar rewards over the next three years even as you improve i think that's a great position to be in and for a fan base that has gone through so much you know, I think that's that's important for them as well. Where are you right now on Sarich? Because I like him quite a bit. The, what concerns me at this point is just the potential fit with Simmons. I think Sarich loves having the ball in his hands. But if they can make it work in terms of either staggering their minutes a little bit and, you know, sharing the ball, adding that level of talent with both of those guys is certainly a huge thing for a team that, and this is something we've seen throughout the league, is that when you have a franchise that's just really bad, you just need to add a lot of NBA caliber players. So that part of it is a huge positive, but it will be challenging to make that work. Yeah. You know, I think offensively, you know, first of all, I think Sarge has to be, that jump shot has to be legit. And it was legit last year for Fez. Um, you know, I think it's he's going to have a slight, it's going to take a little bit of effort to translate that to the NBA line. You know, you're talking about a foot or two further back. You know, I think there's going to be a slight adjustment there. He might come in and maybe shoot, you know, if he shot, what, 37, 38% with Fez last year, he might shoot 32% this year. Just as he kind of gets his, his bearing straight. You know, I think the biggest thing with that shot is he, it's a little bit slow. And it's, there's a difference between making shots and spacing the floor. And I don't think defenders really worry about sagging off of him to help because it does take so long to get off and they feel like they can recover. So I think speeding that up is going to be a priority for the coaching staff. But if they can make that shot into a real weapon that spaces the floor, then I think those two can work a little bit offensively. Uh, you know, and, and like we said earlier, I don't think having multiple ball handlers and multiple decision makers is really a problem as long as those players can then play off the ball as well. And I think Sarge at least has a potential down the line to be that, even if he's not day one. The question for me is really defensively. Um, you know, I think you want Simmons at the four because I think you want his ability to, to, to grab the ball and push in transition. 
But that being said, Sarge can do that as well. And I think you're never going to really ask Sarge to defend a small forward. I don't think he has that kind of lateral foot speed in him. So you're going to have to play him at the four, which means Simmons is going to have to be able to defend at three. And whether or not he can do that, I think, is, is really going to determine whether or not that pairing can work. But I do think that he has the tools to at least do that for stretches during a game. I don't think you're going to look at that as a starting unit. I think you're going to want to be able to bring those two into the game when the matchup dictates that they will work together. You know, but I do think as long as Sarge's shot improves and as long as you can get Simmons to buy in defensively, then I think you can use that, that duo for, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes a night selectively and then have them at their natural position during the rest of the time. And what is wild about having Sarge drafted and then bring him over and being able to draft Ben Simmons is that they're both incredibly unusual talents. Like their combination of skills is just something you don't see, especially at their height. And while they're different in ways that are incredibly important, I think you could argue that in terms of role and niche, they're arguably the most similar players to each other in the league. And so that can be a good thing and that can be a bad thing. But how it's a really good thing is that if let's say they end up working, let's say that they can do what we want, what, what the Lee, you know, basketball fans want them to do offensively, that actually can help from a team building perspective, because then you can look for a more specific type of complementary piece. And if it doesn't, if as long as one of them works out, then you already have somebody who can fill that kind of unusual role. Yeah, well, not only that, but then you can exploit whatever matchup you want. uh, And you can really pick and choose if you have multiple people you can run the offense through, I just think it puts more pressure on the defense. Um, and again, Sarge has to then be an off-the-ball scorer for that to work. Simmons has to kind of develop a little bit off the ball as well. But I think having having complementary skill sets, I think it can work to your advantage at times. But yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting situation for them to, for the, for the style of play that they do. And I do think that, you know, they're both going to make so much of their, so much of their game based off the transition, having two players who can grab a rebound and go like that is going to be great. You know, I do also think it's interesting that Sarge, there's so much question of whether or not he was going to come over. And then the Sixers draft Ben Simmons, who, like you said, is such a mirror image of him, at least in terms of style. Obviously, Simmons is a better athlete. Sarge, at this point, is a better shooter. But the style that they want to play is so similar. And because of how much money Sarge did to gain if he did wait one more year, there's so much speculation. And whether or not maybe the drafting of Simmons would impact that, whether or not the you know glut of big men they have would impact that. And he said, look, I want to come over here. I'm looking forward to playing with Ben Simmons, is, is basically what he said. He had no problem coming over here, even despite the fact that maybe the minutes aren't going to be what he initially expected, even despite the fact there is so much competition for not only minutes and playing time, but also role and touches. You know, he seems like he has his head on straight, and he's going to give you maximum effort. Maybe even at times, I think last night you saw in the Croatia-Serbia game, he can sometimes let his emotions get the best of him, and he has to do a little bit better job of channeling that. But I think he's a guy who's going to come over here, and beyond anything else, beyond even the passing and the improved shooting, he's going to hustle. And I think he's going to be engaged in the game. You're not going to find him taking plays off offensively or defensively. I think he has a lot of deficiencies defensively in terms of his athleticism, but I think by and large he... Uh, is a, a good team defender who has his head on a swivel. I think he's paying attention off the ball, and I think he generally makes the right reads. So I think he's going to help that way. But just the sheer hustle and the, you know, sometimes hustle and passing are two infectious uh, qualities. And when you have passers like Simmons and Sarge, off-the-ball players tend to move more because they're, they're confident they're going to get the ball. 
and we have guys like 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 Sarge who hustle, I think that can be infectious too. So I think he's really going to provide that. Yeah, I, I definitely think it can be. And one player who, regrettably, I think is kind of being marginalized by if these guys work out is Jeremy Grant. I like Jeremy Grant a lot, but I think he's not a great fit with with Simmons and with Sarge just because the shooting isn't enough unless Jeremy gets a lot better. However, because of the stru- contract structure that your former GM used so deftly throughout his tenure, the Sixers have this extremely unusual situation where they have a series of players who are certainly good basketball players on reasonable contracts. Another guy I would include with this is Kendall Marshall, though he's not nearly as good as Jeremy Grant. And if they if they don't fit with, with the Sixers, they can just move them to someone else. And maybe they're not going to get an amazing asset, but I'm going to be interested in, in whether they can make any of those moves in the near or long term, because if I were another team, I would be very interested in those players at their current prices. Yeah, and I mean, even going with the contracts that they're signed to and look i mean jeremy grant he he his future is going to be tied to that jump shot and he has so many unique skills from a three four uh, I, I mean when you're talking about a modern day four or a modern day forward you know the way he his athleticism the way he can cover ground and just come out of nowhere to block a shot i think that can be really valuable but he absolutely has to space the floor more than he does now but because he is so young and he is so cheap you know you can you can keep him on the roster and his playing time is going to drop pretty substantially this year. I mean, they just brought in so much talent from Embiid and Simmons and Sarge that it's going to be tough to get him minutes. I think even if you look at then Rashawn Holmes, you look at Robert Covington, who I think can play some minutes at the floor as a stretch four, there's going to be a some of these players who were getting heavy minutes before aren't going to get that now. But he is still cheap enough where you can keep him on the roster, keep him in your gym, see if he can make really substantial progress. And look, maybe that's not a great, there aren't great odds of that happening. Maybe that's a, five percent chance he improves substantially whatever percent you want to put on it but just in the off chance that it happens you can now keep him on the roster because there's no real there's no real financial consequence to doing so so yeah i think he's going to be interesting i think as a fan base we're not going to have very many opportunities to evaluate him because i don't think he's going to get nearly the same playing time but if they see something in in practice that he's making progress in that jump shot then i do think he can become a rotation player in the nba Yeah, I I certainly think so as well, and I I worry a little bit about that being with Philadelphia just because of their players, but it could be somewhere else and when they're signed on that kind of a contract. And Covington, I think, at least at first blush, is is a worthwhile try at the forward spot next to both Simmons and Saric just because he can shoot, so then you have the spacing issue, and... He's not amazing defensively, but you know he can do the job. So Confident. Yeah. maybe maybe his eventual role is to be a a heavy like on a good team is to be a heavy second unit guy in that role. You know, so like basically plays like twenty minutes a game instead of like twenty eight. Just because if you're a good team, you'll want to have somebody better than that. Like actually, so I was thinking about different players to pair with Simmons and like somebody who I would be intrigued by. Of course, he's not available. Is Alfred Aminu. Just where Aminu, his three-point shot isn't great, but he's active defensively. He can kind of defend both spots and maybe go in that role. But part of what makes the Sixers so different than all these other teams, and it's part of the reason that I'm semi-obsessed with the team, is because they have a quality of assets where they can get options that aren't really available. Not only do they have, and, and also on top of that, they have just a ton of cap space, even though they spent too much money on Jared Bayless, but that, that's <laughs> another thing. But what I mean by that is people talk a lot, and I think a lot about the idea of roles and niches and things like that and Noah's team need. But the truth of the matter, when it when it gets down to it, is that you need the best talent that you can get. And 
I, I get mad at Blazers fans sometimes. There are some of them who will go like, oh, C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, like their, their defensive struggles, that's a big problem. And I go, it is so rare to have two guys that good that you have to, then you, you deal with that. Like, that's why you have a defensive center. And that the parallel with that with the Sixers is that, yeah, you can think about somebody as Amino, like Alfaruq Aminu as being a great natural complement to Ben Simmons. However, an even better one is the next Kevin Durant, the next Paul George, you know, like that kind of thing. Just a guy who is really good at basketball. And the Sixers have the ability, especially because they're probably still going to be bad this year, to add those type of players and just break the rules of team building just because the real rule of team building is get as many potential stars as you can. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's, um, you know, with Simmons and Embiid, and then with those two high-level draft picks next year, and with the Kings pick in 2019, there's a real opportunity. And obviously a lot of things have to go right from Simmons developing to Embiid staying healthy to those picks ending up near the top of the draft but not all the way up so that the Lakers pick conveys. But they're in a real position where they can they can add talent at a high level real quickly. Uh, and I think it's going to be really interesting whether or not they're able to successfully do that, whether or not they're able to get – I mean, we went this far in this we're, – we're 56 minutes in. We haven't even talked about Noel and Okafor. Whether or not they're able to get value – with those two who are almost afterthoughts now that you have Simmons and Embiid on the roster and healthy knock on wood, um, whether or not you can get any value for those two, uh, whether or not you can make the right decisions then when these picks do convey, which is a, a really big part of it too. You know, successful teams always mesh that luck with correct decision-making to to really form something special. It's a, it's a really interesting time. I do think, going back to what you were talking about with Covington, I do think he will be the starting small forward. Uh, I think his his shooting is going to be so important. And also, I think it'll be interesting with him. I mean, look, he's a guy who he shot 38% from the field last year, but he still had like 54% true shooting, which really shows you how much his game is based on a three-pointer. I think like 70% of his attempts were from three. And for somebody who's so dependent on that, you know, he just he didn't get very many open looks because the Sixers couldn't create anything in the half court. I mean, look, at one point in, you know, clutch situations, I think Ishmith had like a Thirty-seven percent usage rate. It was, it was it was absolutely incredible. So seeing him with more legitimate talent that can create shots for others will be interesting as well. There's a lot of pieces now. You know, they spent so much time not worrying about how pieces fit together. But now that you kind of have those two players to build around, transitioning away from that mindset and that philosophy to now trying to find players who can complement Simmons and Embiid's skill set, it'll be really interesting. And they have so many resources to now go out and get second and third and fourth level pieces that if these two players do work out it it, it, it could be uh you know for a fan base that has gone through so much it could be a really exciting time and one of the challenges for them is that they're obviously they're incredibly cheap now and having players like what Saric did you know having four years on rookie scale contract under team control those players aren't going to get expensive for a little while but Nerland's Noel will because whether or not he reaches those the heights that were always a possibility with him. Part of the reason I had him, I believe, number one, maybe number two in that draft class. I think I, I think I had him number one because his defense potential is through the roof. The problem in terms of Noel is that this upcoming free agent class just doesn't have many defensive centers. So all you really need are one or two teams to fall in love with his ceiling, and he'll get a ludicrous offer. So that does change the way that you think about him now. Of course, Embiid also does too. So where are you with Noel, let's say, you know, for the next six months to a year? Well, I think for me the bigger concern isn't so much that Noel 
could get paid because I think ultimately rim protectors and guys who can switch on the perimeter defensively and switch switch pick and rolls and you know cross match and transition I think those guys by and large get paid and I think Noel has a chance to develop into one of the better ones in the league my biggest concern is that he may never be able to play his natural position and you know if Embiid works out you're always going to be you know, you're not you're not going to put Embiid at the four because Embiid can be not only a, a similar level shot blocker to Noel but a much better defensive rebounder and he doesn't have quite the same versatility that Noel has because he can't he, he just doesn't move quite as quickly on the perimeter so in this situation Noel almost gets hurt because of his versatility because he can if he improves his you know part of the problem with him at the four last year is he spent his life defending the rim so his his instincts tell him to do one thing and then Brett Brown's telling him to do another thing because they're trying to make him work with with Oak for but I think if he figures that out and he kind of develops new instincts and, and, and just becomes a little bit better at his responsibilities at the new position. He has the physical tools to defend the four, and that almost hurts him because he, since he has that versatility, the coach asks him to do th- do more than than other players who don't. So I think my biggest concern with Noel is that the only way he really, the only way he's ever really put in a position where he can maximize his skill sets is if Embiid doesn't work out. So it's I, I certainly. You know, my, I, I've been pretty vocal about this. I prefer Noel to Okafor. I would go into the season. I would keep Noel and basically see where I stand at the end of the season. See how much confidence I have in Embiid. See how much you know. If Embiid doesn't work out, then I'm I'm, I'm okay signing Okafor or signing Noel to whatever he's going to get as a restricted free agent. If Embiid does work out, then you're in a tough situation because now you know what are you going to get from him in a signing trade? Uh, but I think with the rumors that are coming in now, and it seems like there's just not the market out there for him now. I think I'm okay going in the season, knowing that there's a chance I might have to work out a sign and trade if he doesn't want to stay here as a backup. I think that's almost preferable, just almost as in beat insurance than the other options. I think you need to end this dance with two out of three of those guys, uh, and that yeah. means them being healthy and productive. And I think the best pairing, just intuitively, is... Embiid and Noel just because you're getting more reliable rim protection and I think that if you do kind of what the term I've started using is what I call a stagger plus so what a stagger plus is where your goal is to have their minutes as far apart as possible but they're both worth more minutes than that so you play them together basically enough so that they get enough minutes so for those guys it'd be probably like let's say you play Embiid 24 you play Noel 28 or in the short term and then obviously you want to scale up Embiid so then you, you're playing them together a couple minutes you know you're doing that when need be but really your focus is having them separated Okafor doesn't complement either of them nearly as well however you need to keep Okafor around for the time being because if Embiid doesn't work out or if Noel leaves or gets too much money to be unpalatable then then he's that's your two and so I think that's the solution. And the other exception to that, because they have so many draft assets, is you always want to be listening to see if somebody makes a ridiculous offer. And I don't expect it. I wrote a piece for the Sport News recently about how I think the center market is oversaturated, and I think that runs against the Sixers for this, but helps them to a degree with Noel, is is that, that idea. But you always want to listen because one example of this that is really kind of helps explain something that I've talked about for years is what Orlando did with Serge Ibaka. And so, you know, there's been a talk about, oh, what if what if Oklahoma City moves him and all that? But you never know when another team is going to be in love with your guy and make a, a ridiculous, silly offer. And you always want to be listening to say yes to it. And in a lot of ways, I think that's probably what ended up happening with the Sixers, how they got the Kings pick was, you know, you, you always want to have the flexibility to do that. And so 
you never know when that's going to present itself. Yeah, no, and I think I think the King King's pick is an interesting parallel because you know it's oh it's not that cap space was valuable; it's that the Kings made a, a stupid decision. Well, that, that kind of runs hand in hand. Like you keep that cap space so you can make that kind of trade. And I think I think your analogy there was on point. You know, ultimately, I do agree that I think you're going to keep two out of the three. And if you go into the in the next season where your long term front court is. Embiid and Simmons starting with Sarge and Noel off the bench. I'm okay with that. And I do think that you can stagger minutes so that the two of them are playing their natural center position as much as humanly possible. My question is always going to come down to, is Noel okay with that? And if he's only playing maybe, let's say, 27 minutes a night instead of maybe 33, is he okay with that? If he's not starting, you know, ultimately minutes are minutes, but guys have egos. They have desires they want to get paid they want the recognition if he's not starting games if he's not finishing games is he going to be okay with that and i think that's the much tougher question to answer but ultimately if if like i said if they go in with those four guys and you have to pay noel a a ton of money i'm okay with that it's just brett brown's really i think going to have a i think he's going to have to really sell that to, to to noel and to really all of these guys that look you might not get the minutes you might not get the starting spot you might not get the prestige but it's, it's for the greater good of the of the team. There's another important consideration there, which will, of course, take time, and that's whether the team is winning or not because it is a lot easier to tolerate yep. a suboptimal role or what you feel is being underserved if your team is good and if your team is you know successful. And that, I think it gets lost a little bit in the fan experience, but I've learned a lot about this covering the league day by day for seven years, is that losing a lot takes... A substantial amount out of the players and winning a lot adds substantially to it and so if the Sixers let's say you know if at the end of the year let's say they're playing better and so we can see that writing on the wall or even if they like let's say that he gets it a reasonable offer they match it but he's still gonna Noel's still gonna be back up and go through all that but then they start out the 2017-18 season strong is then then you kind of see it a little bit differently then it's okay I'm getting paid my money I got my market value and look at this I'm on a, I'm on a good team and I think that's part of what made it hard for, for a guy like Eric Gordon, who got matched in a situation he didn't want, and then was on a team that was just not that good. And so if Noel can be a little bit, can get into a better situation than that, it's not perfect. A guy always still wants to maximize his role and all that kind of stuff. But you don't hear the grousing in any of that way. And also, I think with Noel, he, from what I know about him, he is more of a trooper in the way that I don't think it will affect his play on the court. And I don't think he's going to be that like locker room fracturer that some of those players who get into that situation can be. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's really interesting. I I remember Bob Myers talking about this and basically being like, look, when we signed Andre Iguodala, we never in, in a million years expected to ask him to come off of the bench. But we knew if we had to, we knew that he had the kind of mindset that he would. And clearly, winning at the level that they do, it's a lot easier to make that sales pitch. When you're winning at that level, and maybe with the Sixers, that's a little bit harder of a sell because, like you said, Noel's he's he's really been a trooper in this, and he's sitting here and he's watching, uh, you know, Joel Embiid get all this adulation and Ben Simmons get all of this attention. Meanwhile, he's gone through the entire three years, two as a player, one rehabbing an injury. He's gone through all of the losing, all of the bad point guard play. He's he's tried to play the four to accommodate Okafor. You know, is he? okay with all this is he okay kind of taking a back seat to these other two highly talented guys who also play the positions that he's been playing over the past two years and 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 in Embiid's case his whole life that is a question that I'm not sure any of us right now 
can answer fully. Uh, you know, I think you, you can try to read into Noel's actions, read into his interviews, but hopefully the team has a really good read on that situation too because if you are going to extend him either now or in the offseason, match him as a restricted free agent, you have to know whether or not he would be able to make these kind of sacrifices long term. Uh, and I think that would be a really interesting question because I do think they have a chance to improve. I don't think it's necessarily – like they're not going to come out this year and win 40 games, but I think they have a chance to show improvement and show that they're building something. But you have to make a a leap of faith in Noel's case in, in that he will be okay with a role like that going forward long term. And Noel kind of has to make a leap of faith that the winning is coming and will be coming relatively soon. And something else to consider in this whole thing is that while I think you and I are both lower on Julio Okafor than many, his ideal role is something that the Sixers might be able to provide. And that is being a guy who absolutely just annihilates second units and then he can play a little bit more as need be, you know, as as his play warrants. And he's on a rookie scale contract for another three years. So even if like basically why it's two out of three is that if he ends up being the second out of that, I think that actually in terms of the Sixers winning is a really good fit for him. And there are a couple other teams that could acquire him, even on that rationale, or that have the flexibility, like, that if he can grow into something greater than that, they can accommodate, but if he doesn't, then he can be useful to them for that. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, we've we've all read and written about post scores and second team play, uh, mashing second units, but how many of those are willing to do that a year into their career? Especially a guy like Okafor, who has, you know, had so much success throughout his basketball career. And, you know, just led Duke to that national championship, came in just average 17 as a rookie, as a number over, number three overall pick. You know, he, he might not be at a point in his career where he would be willing to accept that kind of what he would see as a demotion. So I think a lot of what the Sixers have to do right now and the, the waters that they have to navigate, it's almost, you know, working through these guys and, 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 and convincing them of what's best for them long term and, and really almost being, you don't want to say managing egos, but almost being like a psychiatrist in that regard and selling them on things that they might not naturally be willing to accept. It would be really interesting whether or not either of those two guys would take that lesser role. Yeah, it will be, and it will be important. And, and to a degree, with a guy on a rookie-scale contract, you can force it, but you don't really want to. I mean, you don't want to be that team that, that kind of does that, especially when the Sixers want to be a player eventually in free agency. And so the more positive relationships you have, the better. And something I wanted to, to talk about a little bit before before we end this is just the idea of where this is going. And have you had any time really to look at the 2017 draft class yet? A little bit. Uh, I do not go to as many high school events as I used to. This is where covering these Sixers full-time has kind of chipped away into that. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen them a bit. Is there anybody that's really stuck out to you so far? First of all, I think Harry Giles is, at this point, very underrated just because of the injury issues he's gone through the last couple of years. But if he comes out and has a, an injury-free, injury-free season, you know, I think he has a, a world of talent. And I think he could be that next great big man. You know, but Mark Holfoltz, I, I, I really love. And he's kind of young for the class, but I think he's he's kind of, he's really blossomed over the last 12 to 18 months. And I think he has a chance to be a really well-rounded player. He has that flashy creativity, but I think his jump shot has improved. He has that athleticism. He has that ability to really see the floor and, 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 and pick his spots. I like him. He's probably right now my front runner. Obviously, you have a lot of other point guards from Dennis Smith, who is just an elite athlete, the French guy that I'm not even going to try to pronounce his game. Uh, De'Aaron Fox, another really elite athlete. There's a lot of players who 
depending on your needs and depending on your preference, and especially in this point guard class where you're going to have a lot of different players who have a lot of different strengths and style of plays, I think it's going to be a fun class to watch out. I would say right now my favorites are Fultz, Jackson, and Giles. Yeah, I've, I've actually seen all three of those guys, well, not play in person. I've seen Giles interact with people because he was still recovering from his injury. Another player who I don't necessarily love for the Sixers, but I just really like, actually he might work, is Jason Tatum. And yeah. I, t- I talked with Tatum at the Hoop Summit, and I was really impressed with him, and they had a little bit of availability, and so I kind of thought, oh, I'll take the opportunity to talk to one of these guys. And my theory with Jason Tatum is that he'll be a, a kind of a new age four. He's going to play the three at Duke. And so I talked to them a little bit about that and just kind of because that's my, my pet theory with him. And what he said is he's like, well, I'm not going to get the opportunity to play that very much at Duke considering the, the forwards and centers that they have. And that's fine. You know, I think that's actually can be a good thing. And the parallel for Tatum is, might be in that way is Aaron Gordon spending a year at the three, which he's going to do this year in Orlando for better or for worse. And that Tatum, if he can get closer to his ceiling, he could actually be a really awesome fit with a guy like Ben Simmons. And Josh Jackson, I don't love him as much as some people do just in terms of he does, he, when I saw him, I saw him play actually a real high school game of prolific prep. He didn't pop in the way that you want to see those like super elite guys, but if he falls a little bit, like let's say the, they get the Lakers pick and that's around five, it would be hard to do better than that because he's a guy who I think can be useful on the ball, off the ball. His jumper is, is decent enough that, that that will work. And you start to build this team that just has so much talent if you could get somebody like Josh Jackson with the second pick as opposed to the first pick. Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, I think Tatum's going to be a really interesting guy to watch too. I think right now he's a little bit, a little bit kind of dependent on that mid-range game. Uh, I, I'd like to see him extend that a little bit more confidently out to the three-point line because I do think at times he struggles at the rim, uh, and I think especially as he makes that jump in competition, he might struggle a little bit more. You know, he's a little bit like Jabari Parker in that regard where you really want to see him just become a more confident and consistent three-point shooter to really take that next step as, as an elite prospect. And I think he has that capability, but I'd like to see it a little bit more he is certainly going to be in the mix as a top three pick. You know, there's just a lot of a lot of lot of depth and a lot of different ways this college season can go and this NBA draft can go, which always makes for an interesting uh, interesting prospect. I mean, you go back to that 2014 draft, and you had the elite prospect like Wiggins, and then you had a couple other guys like Julius Randle who were highly rated, and a guy like Embiid who kind of came up. You don't want to say out of nowhere because I think he was still a top ten prospect heading into the college season, but he, he just exploded throughout the year. And there's I can draw some parallels to this class because I can see guys maybe a little lower really exploding and, become, and and solidifying themselves as top five picks. And I, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of lot of depth in this draft. I think it's going to be fun to watch. And something I'm excited to see. You, you talked about how the we've talked at length in this podcast about how the Sixers have a different compilation of talent. Is whether while you don't want to draft, you want to get the best point guard kind of available in terms of role because you can always have kind of two alphas in that way and make it work out as long as as long as the other guy can shoot. But whether one of these point guards makes resonates as a potential guy who can play really on and off the ball, and actually a guy who might fit that is Alonzo Ball, who's going to go to UCLA. Because if you can find somebody who can thread that needle, it might in some ways be better. I mean, I don't think that's what they should prioritize in terms of picking somebody. But if you can find it, it would be wonderful to get in this class, especially because they'll be cost-controlled for so long. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's another really interesting prospect and a guy who, you know, a lot of guys have varying opinions of. Some guys absolutely love him. Some guys have him rated a little bit lower. But he's another one of those guys who right now may not be talked about as a, you know, top five pick, but he could certainly fly up. Yeah, certainly could. Anything else you want to discuss? 
Yeah, I think we probably just about covered it. You know, so many different directions that the Sixers season could go from Embiid's health to the big men depth and who they decide to keep. Uh, it, it, it will be fun, um, but I think there's still, you know, what we view now could change pretty rapidly, uh, and there's so many future assets that, you know, this season you just want to kind of see play out and see what you have and see what you can build around. So next season when you have these these other picks and these guys you have to extend or, or, or match on, uh, you have a little more information. You know, I think Sixers fans have been kind of had this belief in what was going on, and I think now they've finally started to get that luck where they can see that reward. Uh, and, and right now you build on that and you get as much information as you can. I think it's going to be a fun time. One other thing uh, before we head out that I, I think is notable with the Sixers team is that they're one of the few franchises that still has cap space for this year. And I'm not sure that will be incredibly useful in the near term, you know, in the next, let's say, two months, even when teams have the cutdown day, because they have so many players on their roster that it's not like they can use that and take, let's say, the best player, pick up the best player that gets waived. You know, like that's not really as useful to them unless somebody does something really stupid. But I'm very intrigued to see if they can do be, you know, like the next kind of Portland and really extract an asset from a team this year, even though there will be less of that than there ever has been, but just to to use their space maybe one last time to get an asset of some value because anything you can do with that is would be a really nice benefit to just get another lottery ticket, let's say. Yeah, and I think you're right in that it's maybe not quite the same that it used to be where you're not going to have as many teams hitting the luxury tax as you used to. You're not going to have as many teams really desperate to move move contracts and save space. You know, but certainly I think there are going to be creative uses of that cap space. And like you said, for as much cap space as there was in the summer, there's significantly less of it now. So any team that feels like, you know, they need to shed a little bit of salary at the trade deadline to line themselves up for, you know, whatever moves they want to make in the offseason, you know, hopefully the Sixers can be positioned to capitalize on that. And I do like the fact that, you know, they've gone out and they've they've spent some money in Sergio Rodriguez and, you know, Gerald Henderson and Jared Bayless. But they still do have some. They're not desperate to get to that salary cap floor, and they've maintained some flexibility so that they can make that, you know, Kings-type trade, not that I ever expect that to be replicated. But like you said, just be in position to capitalize if an opportunity does come up. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks again to Derek Bodner for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Philadelphia Magazine, and you can also read him. He does some NBA draft work for USA Today and college basketball work for Draft Express. should also definitely follow him on Twitter at Derek Bodner NBA, D-E-R-E-K-B-O-D-N-E-R-N-B-A. He's actually really close to 16,000 followers, so hopefully this podcast can help push him over that limit, though. Of course, he doesn't need our help to get more. He deserves it all on his own. It was great talking with him. The Sixers are just so fascinating because of the amount of options they have and the high-ceiling players now that they've added Embiid, hopefully, and Ben Simmons. And, you know, we'll see how their role players work out and what they do with their cap space. But I think their situation is really fascinating. And it's been a, a fun time. Nate Duncan and I just did have been doing some Olympic work, and we also started the uh, project we've been working on for a couple weeks now about the best and worst contracts since the lockout. We did 2011 to 2013 and then we'll do 14 15 and a little dash of 16 at some point in the future we also of course have talked olympics and we'll keep on doing that i'm not totally sure if i'm going to do a real gm radio olympic recap i think it will depend on what happens and what that really means moving forward it might end up being a small piece of a bigger thing just working on that and of course 
the division capsules. So that is a off-season interview and season preview. Those will continue for Real Jam Radio. I'm working on the guests. Most of the guests are actually lined up. Just some of them wanted to wait a little bit after the Olympics, later in the off-season, all that sort of thing. And then I still have a couple more to line up. But it's going to probably be two guests per episode unless there are late cancellations. So that's a lot of fun. There's something that I really do look forward to. And also, of course, working on a bunch of other stuff. I did an interview with Celtic Stuff Live, which is a podcast in the CLNS radio family, which I am thrilled to be a part of with Real Jam Radio. And you can, of course, use their app. And we did an interview, which is something I've wanted to do for a little while, about kind of my place in the business and everything like that and how I got here going from law school to sports writing to doing it full time. So definitely give that a listen there. It's I've tweeted out a couple times. It's also on my Facebook page, which is Danny LaRue NBA. So you can take a look at it. I think you'll enjoy it. It's, you know, I, I wanted to do that. And I'm also going to write a piece at some point in the near future, whenever I have free time about that kind of a thing and giving some advice. And cause I get asked it a lot and I honestly don't have the time to write up something new every time. So if I could have a piece to point to, to say, hey, hey, look here, I think that would be very useful, not only for me, but for everybody else who wants that. And I always do want to take that step to help push people, you know, in the in the positive direction and give them an, the opportunity and the knowledge that I have gleaned through these years. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun to do that. Uh, I will be bringing a lot more content. Hopefully, you know, I'm going to take a little bit of a break, but still going to write for Sporting News, The Athletic, bringing back CBA Encyclopedia for Real GM in the near future. I have some ideas. I've just been so busy with everything else and a lot of other really fun stuff coming down the pipeline. So you can always reach out to me. I read everything, respond to as much as I can. Twitter, Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y, L-E-R-O-U-X. Email NBA at gmail.com. I really do appreciate the feedback, positive, negative, in between. But if it's going to be negative, and it can be, no problem with that, have it be constructive. Because if it's just, you know, if it's just negative, I can't really do much about it. But if it's, hey, you can do X, X, Y, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, working on various things, toying with what I can do to make the audio quality better, actually using a new editing app the last few weeks. And I tried out a new one with this episode, not in the version you heard, but I'm going to do some sound tests afterwards. So always working on that sort of thing because it really does matter to me. So also a very important thing that you can do with this podcast and the other one, you can download every episode just to make sure you get that. Leave a rating and a review and make actual references to people, you know, people that you think will enjoy it because this is as small of a world as it feels like podcasting is at some points, there are a lot of ears that we don't reach, especially because while Real GM is an amazing platform and I'm thrilled to have it, there are a lot of people who have bigger megaphones and that makes it easier to find it. And so if you think this is something that is worth somebody's time, recommend it. And that's, of course, one of my goals in everything that I do. And obviously the other huge thing you can do for me and for this podcast is try out Blue Apron. So you go to blueapron.com slash realgm. You can get awesome meals. You've heard you've heard my promos, and it does really come from the heart. It's a product that I legitimately love. So if you go to that website, you can get three meals for free, and you get free shipping. And so you don't have to make any commitment long term. And you, so you get free food, you get free meals, which I think you will really enjoy. And also it helps out the podcast. So you can go there for that. And, you know, reach out. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
Dash an emergency hotline. Help, I've got a hot date tonight and I need to look amazing. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's new Rockstar jeans have built-in sculpt to make your bod look va-va-voom. Tell me more. Right now, all jeans are on sale up to 50% off, including kids' jeans and new men's jeans with built-in flags. 50% off? That's right. I think you and your jeans will be very happy together. Jeans that sculpt at an incredible price? I think I'm in love. Thanks. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Valid 811 to 824. Select styles only. Fashion emergency hotline. Help, I've got a hot date tonight and I need to look amazing. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's new Rockstar jeans have built-in sculpt to make your bod look va-va-voom. Tell me more. Right now, all jeans are on sale up to 50% off, including kids' jeans and new men's jeans with built-in flags. 50% off? That's right. I think you and your jeans will be very happy together. Jeans that sculpt at an incredible price? I think I'm in love. Thanks. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Bell at 811 to 824. Select styles only. Fashion emergency hotline. Help, I've got a hot date tonight and I need to look amazing. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's new Rockstar jeans have built-in sculpt to make your bod look va-va-voom. Tell me more. Right now, all jeans are on sale up to 50% off, including kids' jeans and new men's jeans with built-in flags. 50% off? That's right. I think you and your jeans will be very happy together. Jeans that sculpt at an incredible price? I think I'm in love. Thanks. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Valid 811 to 824. Select styles only.